Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Back at work this week. Um, it's not that different from not being at work really. Still in the same house, still sitting at the same desk, but playing less mahjong and doing less painting, I suppose, as the main difference. Anyway, lots of activity on the blog this week. We started off with uh, Aisha Samsudin, uh, who has written a really nice post on um, a women's organization in Kerala in southern India, which is often held up as a kind of developmental superstar. A lot of interest in how Kerala's managed to develop much better than the rest of India over the last few decades. And it turns out that uh, it's all, that's also enabled it to respond very well to COVID. So what she's looking at is a women's solidarity network called Kudumbashri, um, which uh, is, a ne- is a statewide network of self-help groups of 4.5 million marginalised women. So whenever you're talking about social movements in India, the numbers are always just absolutely like a, a, on a different scale to everywhere else, I think. Uh, it's been going for about 20 years and it's worked in economic development, uh, agriculture, education, care of the vulnerable, a whole range of activities. Um, <clears throat> when COVID struck Kerala, they were just already organized. They already had the bonds of trust and solidarity and they just got you know, they just got started working on PPE, social isolation, all the rest of it. So some of the things Aisha looks at are um, food. So they set up community kitchens and subsidized restaurants and these expanded rapidly um, to respond to the need of all the migrant workers and the people who are suddenly short of food collaborating with local government so the Kudumbashri is very much works very closely with the local state um, they transformed vacant public buildings into community kitchens started a thousand community kitchens across the state um, they also started producing ppe started disseminating information all the rest of it um, and then the question that uh, Aisha asks is, so, so where did these women derive this strength and capacity from? And this is where the history of Kerala uh, is important. So I'll read out the, the paragraph on this. <clears throat> In the late 1990s, the government of Kerala embarked on rapid democratic decentralization, giving exceptional powers to local governments. One of the key philosophies of decentralisation was encouraging people to identify their own needs and problems and empowering them to make their own decisions by making them active participants in local development planning. To achieve full decentralisation, mass mobilisation and awareness generation was indispensable. A central strategy employed by the then government was the launch of a massive public campaign popularly known as the People's Planning Campaign. And one of the priorities of this campaign was ensuring the active participation of women in the democratic planning process. The campaign launched massive capacity building initiatives for women to nurture women's leadership at the local government level. In addition, the state government made it mandatory for local governments to earmark 10% of their funds to women's development projects. So her conclusion is, as countries and civil society organisations across the global north and south ponder feminist recovery plans, uh, for, for a COVID recovery, Kerala's role in promoting gender responsive policymaking and its Kudumbashri intervention are worth exploring. I mean, I think the lesson is invest massively in uh, women's empowerment and in bringing women into this participatory planning process. And then when something bad happens like COVID, you've got an extraordinary platform on which you can build very fast in the response. Um, a really interesting piece of work and yeah, just strengthens the case for investing in women's organisations in peacetime because then when something goes wrong, they're there and they're strong and able to respond. 
Second post of the week was a bit of a rant, actually. I do have these rants on the blog occasionally. And this one is about one of my uh, favorite rant subjects, open access journals, uh, and, and the whole question of open access in, uh, in academic writing. Uh, I've, uh, Maria Faciolinzi and I uh, have a paper out in a journal called Development and Change. And it's a special collection on open access in, in academic publishing, edited by a colleague at LSE, Kate, Kate Macher. Um, I must say, Maria did most of the work. So, you know, full disclosure there, um, it, it's mainly her work. Um, and the reason why Development and Change commissioned this collection is that they're worried about the way open access is playing out in the world of academic journals. Because what journals have done is saying, OK, you want to publish open access uh, so that readers don't have to pay, but we've got to make our money somewhere. So we're going to introduce author processing charges, APCs, in return for publishing open access. So basically, instead of the reader paying, the writer now has to pay to publish their work. And the average is about £2,000 per article, per, per writer. Um, and what the Development and Change editors, and Kate uh, Macher in particular, were worried about was that this is actually going to exclude people, especially authors who don't have big institutional backing, authors from the Global South in particular. So what Maria did was go back and talk to a bunch of um, uh, our contributors on the Power Shifts project on From Poverty to Power, which is contributors from the Global South, and say, what do you think about this? Um, and it, we, we came away with quite a nuanced picture that actually people often... Uh, don't have to pay um, and sometimes they pay when they don't need to but they just are unaware that there are waivers for people from different countries and that kind of thing um, and our conclusion was or rather Maria's conclusion really short of doing away with the whole edifice of academic journals we remain convinced that open access represents a positive step forward in making knowledge a public good beyond the walls of relatively privileged academic institutions but if we want to eliminate the pay to read business model for everyone there needs to be more thinking and investment going towards supporting scholarship from the global south. So it's no good just having open access if you have to write in a particular style which excludes large numbers of people. If the things that are counted as important or worthwhile are determined in the north, there's a whole much wider question of what constitutes useful knowledge and useful communications, which, which doesn't go away just because you go open access. So that was all fine. And then we had an, an LSE webinar. Um, uh, where Kate did a really good presentation on the sort of over, overall messages from the collection. And it all went a bit weird. Uh, and this often, often happens to me when I go on LSE web, webinars. I feel like um, a barbarian trespassing within the gates of the magisterium. You know, that wonderful picture Philip Pullman's got uh, in his dark materials of these kind of dusty old academics um, uh, who actually have, hold enormous power. So <clears throat> let me just... Um, give you a flavour of the rant. I find it impossible to convey to my LSE colleagues just how bizarre the journal system appears to outsiders. A system that produces work that no one outside academia is likely to read, where academics are expected to write, edit and peer review for free and now pay to have their work published. Also that private, private journal corporates, uh, academic journal corporates can continue to rake off massive profits profits. Think giant vampire squid, but with footnotes. And one massive blind spot that came up in the discussion uh, was a, it was another bit of the weirdness of LSE conversations, which it was held almost entirely from the point of view of, is this or is this not good for scholars, good for the producers of knowledge? No reference at all to who might be reading it, and the fact that anyone outside a university finds it very hard to access 
academic journals. That was like, meh, don't care. It reminded me a bit of some conversations I've had in the past with farmers about food policy. It's basically about production. Consumption is completely secondary. So <clears throat> yeah, the reason why I think that's wrong is because I care about the readers. I care about the access to the knowledge. Um, but also, you know, these days, academics are judged on their ability to have impact. And if the stuff you're writing is invisible to everybody who isn't an academic, I think it's fair to assume that your impact is reduced. So there's some very clear lessons there for open access and for the way we publish in terms of having wider impacts on civil servants, on journalists, on um, you know, non-profits and NGOs, all that kind of thing. Final thoughts from Kate's presentation was that what's happened with the open access thing is a classic situation where people are trying to find a tech fix open access to a political problem, who controls knowledge, who controls the profits. And what happens is, surprise, surprise, the gatekeepers have mobilized to maintain their control and profits. Um, so the big publishing conglomerates have, have been very effective in twisting open access, introducing these APCs, these author processing charges, and maintaining ridiculous levels of profitability. And now all that happens is that academics not only have to do it for free, but they have to pay. So this is what happens when you try and introduce a tech fix to a political problem. Um, one other impression I had from this debate was it's all a bit out of date. It just feels like the discussion on open access has been overtaken by a much bigger conversation about Black Lives Matter, decolonizing academia, whose knowledge counts, you know, much bigger topics of which open access is just a small part. Then from a very heavy and sort of ranty blog to a very light and fluffy blog, third, third post of the week was on I've noticed, you know, I, I feel the pain of some of my students who do, who for whom English is um, a second language and not one in which they're fluent, having to do presentations in English. Um, and, you know, I enjoy a massive advantage in all sorts of fora because it's my first language and so many of these conversations are in English. So I just did what I do sometimes. Stuck out a, a, a tweet uh, to my followers and said, um, hey, guys, what are your top tips for giving presentations in second languages. I do this in Spanish. In fact, I'm doing it tonight. We're launching the um, a Portuguese translation of How Change Happens tonight. And um, I'll have to do it in Spanish because my Portuguese is terrible. Um, and so it was actually quite relevant, you know, asking people for top tips. Here's what they came up with. Um, first of all, how do you prepare? Well, you prepare a lot more if it's a second language in which you are not confident. So write out the talk. Don't just wing it with the slides. Um, practice out loud so you get your, your tongue around the difficult words. Uh, maybe even record it in advance and get a native speaker to listen and point out. The other thing is you can commit absolute massive gaffes without realising it. Um, in Spanish, for example, the word for conservative and the word for condom are alarmingly similar. You have to be careful with the way you go with that. Um, get into role. So read something in the same language beforehand to get your linguistic juices flowing. You know, write down a list of key words on the topic. I'm going to have to do this before tonight. Um, and linking phrases and so on. Then in terms of how you speak, you have to both swallow your pride. You're going to sound like an idiot. Just get over it. Um, and don't take yourself too seriously. Apologize in advance. You know, my Spanish is terrible. Beg your pardon. And give the audience permission to laugh at you. You know, don't get all offended if people laugh at you or if you say something hilarious. Um, but don't try and tell jokes. OK, um, in this language, you are the joke and that and you need to use that. Um, but don't don't try and tell complicated jokes when you're just going to it's just going to fall flat. Um, use lots of visuals, roadmaps if you're using a PowerPoint 
and they can all help. Uh, if you mess up on the language, at least people have got something, some words on the page to look at. And then in terms of the interaction, don't talk so much. Hand over the stick. Invite people into, you know, native speakers in the audience say, what do you think? Would you like to explain what you think about that? Hand over the stick earlier than you would in, in your own language. Take one question at a time in Q&A and don't be, but don't be proud. Ask the host to translate if you haven't understood it. So I thought these were really practical. I'd love to hear some more. We'll see whether anything else comes up on the blog. But um, it was a, a really nice. I like generating blogs through this kind of Twitter conversation. And then the final post was a, a post on citizen aid. This was a new concept to me. Uh, well, new new phrase, not a new concept. Um, and there's a post by Seb Rumsby, um, who uh, uh, has observed that over the past 30 years, there's been a huge increase in the number of small scale nonprofit organizations which don't quite fit the traditional NGO box. Um, yeah, they're usually informal and it's like, you know, somebody goes backpacking, is shocked by something, promises the um, to do something when they get home, raise some money, teach some kids, sponsor some um, students, that kind of thing. Um, and these become new development initiatives and they're happening all the time as the interaction between people increases, not just north-south. You know, people in developing countries are doing it. Increasingly, people in the rich world are doing it. So there's this kind of spontaneous humanitarianism is kind of popping up all over the place. Projects typically focus on youth, education, disability or health. And one of the big differences with the more formal NGO sector is that it's all about personal relationships. I've met these people in this village. I promised them I would help. So please, can you support me and you know, give me some money and I'll make that happen. Now, there are lots of downsides. It's very easy to criticize this, you know, so um, Seb Rumsby uh, names five. Amateurism, you know, people haven't got any skills, they haven't got any training. Fragmentation, everybody's got their own little initiative, they don't add, they, they don't work together. Restricted focus, they're just building classrooms, not thinking about why people need classrooms or why people are poor in the first place. Uh, often done on a shoestring and the big one, paternalism. Yeah, this is riddled with risks of white savior complex you know, um, help me save the world stuff, which has been well satirized in many fora uh, and quite correctly so. But the reality is, and this is Seb's argument, that it's not going away. People are going to keep doing this kind of stuff. So what do we do? Sniff and, and sort of criticize it or try and help people improve. And so what he's done is uh, be part of setting up a new website, diydevelopment.com, um, uh, which is to actually provide training and support for everyday, you know, citizen citizen aid people, and it's quite it's quite a neat little website. I had a look. It's got it's got an interactive self assessment, so you fill that in at this survey, um, saying what you you know what your project is like, and then you get free personalised feedback to help you encourage best practice, point you towards good things to read, good ideas, good toolkits, and that kind of stuff. It seems very sensible to me, but um, I was a bit nervous about posting it in case it gets hammered for um, you know uh, endorsing the white savior complex. I don't think it does that but um, see what you think for yourself. And on that note of self-doubt, uh, have a great weekend and talk to you next week. Bye.